Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. War is saturated with objects shaped and carried from battlefields to homes. Sometimes such objects end up in museums, but the personal stories of how such objects came to make journeys from Vietnam, for example, to rural Utah often do not. Utah Public Radio is partnering with the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, the USU History Department, and the USU Museum of Anthropology in the Bringing War Home Project. And we're going to talk about that on the uh, episode today, the special member drive edition of the program. We're going to talk with USU history professor Susan Grazel, who joins us in studio. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And Molly Cannon, who's director of USU Anthropology Museum and USU Mountain West Center, is with us as well. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Um, and you can sign up to record your story with us at uh, one of the road shows that will be happening um, at upr.org. Upr.org is the front page. Scroll down just slightly on the right-hand side, and you'll see Bringing War Home. And you can click on to uh, select a record time uh, to, to be with us. Um, so uh, let me start with you, Molly Cannon. Uh, j- just a brief overview of what this project is. We'll get into it in more details. but. Sure. Uh, Tom, what we're really interested in is collecting Utahns' experiences of, of war um, through their through their own personal stories. And we're interested in the material culture or the objects uh, that can help tell those stories. Very good. Um, so, so well, let me go to this. For example, um, Susan Grizel, you have a you have a new book coming out. Um, I, I will plug this. Let me uh, get the title here: "The Age of the Gas Mask." Subtitle is "How British Civilians Face the Terrors of a Total War." Um, so this is an example of what you know, an objects or objects, and a lot of meaning uh, to those objects. Yes, that's part of the reason that I became interested in partnering uh, with Molly and working on developing a a public history project that looks at how objects can help us understand our past, can help us tell the history of war. As you said in our introduction, war is filled with objects, the things people carry, the kit that soldiers bring with them. But alongside that, there are objects that that cross the divide between civilians and combatants' experiences. So I was really struck as someone who has studied the history of the First World War for a long time that the gas mask, an object that was invented by the military to face the innovative use of lethal chemical weapons, became something that on the verge of the Second World War was distributed widely to civilian populations. So that in Britain, for example, by 1939, they had developed gas masks for small children, for adults of various ages, and they invested a tremendous amount of government resources in trying to figure out how to protect their civilian population. So that's the sort of history of how you have an object at the center of a story of not just one world war, but two world wars. But I also became fascinated by the fact that as I started to talk about this project, uh, particularly in the United Kingdom, people would come up to me at the end and they all had a story. If Mm. they'd been alive Mm. during the Second World War, if they'd been alive as small children in the late 1930s, they remembered getting their gas mask and they remembered a variety of experiences and emotions associated with that. And that just led me to believe that there was something powerful about objects and how they help us remember things that are personal but also historical. So you 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 talk to people in the UK about about yes. this, yeah. 
Yeah. So not only gas masks, but they probably talk about other objects as well. Yes, yeah. certainly. Uh, certainly talked about good luck charms, talked about the power of an individual photograph. Uh, many of the things that historians use to tell the history of the past are, are visual or textual. But I was really and became interested in asking follow-up questions about about things, about objects, about the material life that really surrounded both civilians um, and soldiers. Mm-hmm. So Molly Cannon is an anthropologist, the obvious connection to objects, right? Uh, um, so tell me about this, just maybe just from perspective of anthropology, and then then we could move it. To, I, I was about to say move it forward. Maybe that's a stereotype about anthropology that you'll want to you'll want to you'll want to puncture. <laughs> Um, I, well, I think that's true. I am very comfortable working with objects and trying to extract a lot of meaning from objects. As an archaeologist, that's exactly what we do, is try to learn from the past through the material remains of people who lived in the past. Um, and we have a number of tools that we use to do that. Um, but as anthropologists, we also, who are studying people in in contemporary times, we also know the power of objects and the meaning that people place on those objects, and how that really lets us get a better gain a better understanding of of individuals, but certainly as groups too, and how they maybe live together, um, the types of objects that can connect one another. Um, the type of objects that get passed down from generation to generation really tell you something um, about those families. Yeah. Uh, Sue Grizel, I wonder, the, the folks that you've talked to in the U.K. or, or any others that you've talked to, usually surrounding war, right? It's World War One, is it? That you're, you're kind of World focused War, on? Yeah. World War One, and then increasingly the Second World War, mm-hmm. but also the period in between them, which is filled with violence um, in other parts of the world, not necessarily um, in, on, the, on the British Isles themselves. But through the teaching that I've been doing, I've increasingly been interested in helping my students to see that when we think about these great cataclysmic events, that they affect families, they affect individuals, and the way that we understand the big events is through starting with the individual and the local and everyday life. And that's filled with things that come into people's lives, like ration books, right, that weren't part of their world until they suddenly appear. Or the idea of uh, what was brought back from a war or sent back, um, postcards being a really interesting example of that. There are all kinds of ways in which, when we think about the experience of refugees, which is a central part of the wars of the 20th century, and sadly, obviously, until this day, we think about the things that were carried because they were meaningful, but also the things that became meaningful because those were the things that they had Mm -hmm. and that served to remind them of experiences. So it's less the sort of, this was the most valuable thing that they could bring with them, but this was the thing that reminded them of a particular individual or home, regardless of its aesthetic qualities or its financial value. So I just think there's a lot of power in what things can tell us. Yeah. Well, it brings us right up to present day, right? Absolutely. There there will be things that Ukrainian refugees will be carrying with them. As you say, that might not be the most valuable thing they had, but whatever they had will, will have meaning. 
Absolutely. Uh, to them. I wonder, I want to follow up. Uh, did, did, you know, everybody had a ration book. D- did families keep these? Yes, in some cases. Yeah, okay. Part of the goal of, of this project, which I'm excited to, to talk to folks about and really hope that this will inspire people, whether to participate in our project, but to themselves document their own family and individual stories, is the moment when you're going through someone's moving and you're going through the attic or the basement and there are these boxes that have not been opened, that people haven't paid attention to, but I feel that those are filled with buried treasures for historians, um, filled with uh, things, everything from the ration book to uh, the pamphlet that was given out to explain various things about food and conserving resources. There's a tremendous amount of kind of official documents, but then I'm interested in what individuals or families choose to preserve or the fact that they can be annotated, the fact that they can have notes on them, that these things are not static. They always tell us something because of how individuals and families engage with the kind of officialdom of war, I guess I would call it. Yeah. And then uh, part of this project is uh, Molly Cannon helping people, I guess, to understand the objects that they bring in. Situate it, right? Sure. Um, we are we are here to help in that capacity, but really we're we're wanting to learn from you. Um, we're wanting to be able to document um, your family's history, your personal history. Um, we're here to help you think about no object is too mundane or small to bring in, right? Um, any letter, any photograph that has this family story, we're interested in putting that in the archive. Um, It's through this collective history that we really can gain a better understanding of what um, the folks of Utah experienced during these different conflicts. Yeah. I'm looking at a photograph and a story about bringing war home. This is a Kristen Munson's story in USU Today. Um, A Statue of Liberty etched into an artillery shell casing. I guess that's an example. A soldier brings artillery shell casing, I guess a spent casing home. Uh, I don't know if the soldier etched that in. Yeah, so that's a great example of um, what what we call, what's been, become called trench art. Um, so this these are um, pieces of, of artillery shell casing, obviously not live ammunition, that soldiers with a fair amount of time (laughs) on their hands were able to modify while they were, um, you know, stationed overseas. And so this was um, this was a great example that came in during the 2018 roadshow that Sue and um, Dr. Evelyn Funda put on at the end of their course um, to commemorate the um, First World War. And um, this particular object has three different etchings on it, one of the Statue of Liberty, one of the American flag, sort of in this um, motion, like it's waving across the shell casing, and um, and one of his um, insignia from his unit that he was deployed under. Yeah, interesting. So, Sue Grizel, anything stand out to you? Objects that are particularly memorable to you that that were brought in the previous 
projects. That was very powerful, mm. but so were the photographs that were brought in. Someone brought in the dog tags of someone who'd been a chaplain in the First World War. And having taught a course over a course on 1918 in 2018, where we really were trying to understand this pivotal year, just giving students the opportunity to see that these were, there's something about the objects that made it possible to to have that connection, that these were these were humans, right? These were people. These weren't just troops, right? A lot of operational military history talks about the movement of troops or units as if they weren't composed of individuals with backstories and ties to their families and an afterlife after that experience. So the fact that these had been preserved for 100 years and that they were they were part of what the family saw as very meaningful about their history just really brought the fact that these this big complicated war that you spend weeks trying to explain the origins of and then just as long to explain the outcomes is just filled with people who experience it but are also connected to their homes and families and that those events live on in that way yeah this you, you mentioned that you said the word aftermath, right? World War One, obviously nobody left, no, who fought, right? Um, um, but these objects have an afterlife in the family, and it might have a very different meaning to the family than to the soldier who brought it home. Absolutely, and I think that the history of military families and what the legacies are of that service, especially when you have these wars of mass mobilization, are, are there's still much that we can learn. About about their afterlife and about how they change the tra- trajectories of of families and of individuals, and one of the goals of this project, since we there is no one uh, who served in the First World War left alive to speak to, is to speak to those and to their immediate survivors of uh, still distant but more recent wars before we lose those stories. Yeah. Oh, you're quoted in in the story, the Kristen Munson story, as as saying, you know, you're focusing this project on World War One and, and the Vietnam War. Uh, Vietnam veterans are getting older, right? And you say, you, boy, you wish you'd have had a project like this for the World War One uh, contemporaneously. Absolutely, and uh, and a project like this where we're really interested in hearing the meaning of these objects from those who, for whom they're connected. So it's not just me interrogating someone um, to ask about this, but but to really start with the opening, you know, what what is this object? What does it mean to you? What do you associate with? What emotions does it bring up? Those are the kinds of questions I'm not even sure you, you would have been asking or asking in the same way, but really to start with centering that we want to hear the stories of those who lived through these experiences. And I I would add that's true for both veterans and and for civilians, because when we think about the impact of something like the Vietnam War, it it has a huge impact on on those who who didn't serve. Yeah, very, very true, very true. A big impact on those who who didn't serve. I want to follow that up, uh, but we're heading toward a break here. Um, So Molly Cannon, uh, uh, tell us what uh, person comes into one of these road shows. By the way, the the first two of these are on April 9th. These are on Saturdays, right? So Saturday, April 9th. Uh, so in the morning, you'll be at the Eccles Conference Center here on the USU campus, and then the afternoon, Hiram City Museum. 
so if somebody's interested, what, what, what's going to happen if they bring their object in? Yeah, so what is a road show? We're calling these road shows because we're um, going to have a team of students and volunteers who are assisting us to document your objects. Uh, we are not collecting objects. Rather, we are collecting the information about them. We're hoping to digitize them in the, in the manner of fo using photographs um, so that these objects can be preserved in a, a public archive, digital archive with um, USU libraries in the future. When you arrive on a Saturday, uh, you'll be greeted by some USU students who will take your information down and then direct you to a table where you'll sit down with one of us and, and really just share your story. And we will be collecting all the sort of basic information about what is the object, what's it made out of, um, but then getting back at those questions that Sue just introduced us to that really get at the, the heart of the story um, and what this object means to your family. Uh, and as part of this, uh, you have an opportunity to uh, sit down and record your your story. So we're doing uh, half-hour increments uh, each of these road shows around Utah, and uh, that's where we want you to go to upr.org, upr.org, and uh, sign up for, for a time. And if you can't come to one of the road shows, then we'll work something out, maybe have you come into UPR Studios and record your story. Um, or, or work something else out, because um, we really do want your story. Um, so that's a component as well. And uh, then you'll get a recording of that, right? And um, and then the, and then the recording will be archived yes. as well. Wonderful. Well, uh, that's the Bringing War Home project, Bringing War Home, Object Stories, Memory, and Modern War. And we're talking with uh, two driving forces for this. Uh, who are uh, USU history professor Susan Grazel and uh, Molly Cannon, director of USU Anthropology Museum and USU Mountain West Center. Uh, so um, this is just one project that uh, UPR is partnering with. Uh, U Access Utah, of course, uh, supported by members as well. The list goes on and on. Let me start with uh, with with Molly Cannon. Why why should people give to support this? Well, Utah Public Radio. At its heart, it is community radio. Um, you can find out the stories in your local community through this radio station, and there is just nothing else that presents that um, to our community. So I, for me, that's the main reason why I support Utah Public Radio, is to hear about my own community. All right, very good. Sue Grazel, why, wait, your pitch to our, to our listeners. <clears throat> I love going into my car, turning on the radio, and always being surprised. And I feel that just having it tuned uh, to UPR means that there's something interesting to listen to every time I have to go somewhere. And so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for everyone who supports my ability to do that. Well, here's how to do that. Join your support with, uh, with Molly Cannon and Sue Grazel. Uh, at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. I'll say it again, 800-826-1495, or you can go online to upr.org, upr.org. Um, when you go there to upr.org, you can see all the thank you gifts. If you call 800-826-1495, you can talk to Lachelle or the other volunteer who will answer the phone and uh, take you through the, the thank you gifts as well. We've got our new UPR art mug, for example. Uh, a lot of things available to you. And um, you can give comments as well. 
uh, things you like and maybe things you believe that UPR should improve in. We certainly uh, pay attention to those things. Uh, and uh, I'm thanking you in advance. Uh, hope you'll go right now while you're thinking about it. And, of course, hope you'll support uh, Access Utah. Um, I look at that and... I'm either heartened or, uh, or or I think we need improvement if we have a lot of calls coming in during this hour. Uh, 800-826-1495 or upr.org. And thank you. Welcome to Access Utah. Or thanks for listening to Access Utah. And uh, we are talking about the Bringing War Home project. That is a project that we're just about to launch and uh, it uh, comes from the USU History Department and the USU Museum of Anthropology, also the USU Mountain West Center for Regional Studies, and UPR is partnering with those organizations and with our guests today, USU History Professor Susan Grazel and Molly Cannon, who's director of the USU Anthropology Museum and the USU Mountain West Center. Um, and you can find out uh, more about the Bringing War Home project. Um, at the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies. Um, you can also find out more at upr.org. That's on the front page of the right-hand side. Scroll down just a little bit. Bringing War Home. If you click on the link, you'll be able to sign up to come to one of the roadshows and record your story. So bring your object in. Uh, and these are objects uh, brought home from war or carried to war and back, right? Um, many families have these, and so uh, you might be a military veteran or family member or friend, um, and we'd love to have you come to one of the road shows, uh, talk about it, um, and, and then record your story as well. And so those uh, road shows, that begins uh, on April 9th, right? Molly Cannon, do you want to give us some more details? Sure. Our first road shows, as you said, Tom, began on April 9th in the morning here on the Logan campus in the Eccles Conference Center at 10 a.m., and then in the afternoon on April 9th, we will be traveling uh, across the valley to the Hiram City Museum um, at, from 1 to 3 when you can um, bring in your objects uh, for documentation there at their museum, as well as uh, meet with folks from Utah Public Radio to record your story. In um, they're just They've got a fantastic facility. We got to visit there yesterday, and so I'm really looking forward to meeting um, people from Southern Cache Valley and Hiram. Yeah. What you're doing, you'll, I guess you'll take a photograph of the object, right? And you'll ask some questions about it. And, uh, and uh, then, of course, uh, if, if you're available, I uh, hope you'll step over uh, to an adjoining room and record, record with us, record your story. Um, so uh, we talked a little bit about this, but objects that you, c- you could have dog tags or a photo of a dog tag, right? Uh, or we talked about shell casing the people. What other objects have you encountered? Well, I'm thinking actually of an object that um, when I was back over the um, holiday break visiting my family, my uncle and my mother had found this letter um, of their father's cousin who had served during World War II. And he sent this letter back to my grandfather and my grandmother. And, you know, it was just it was just a letter, but he's sending this from... From the battlefield, right? And it's a letter that talks about, you know, what their day was like, but very little mention of the actual combat experience, but all the sort of other experiences that are going on while they're serving. Um, And this is a letter that 
you know, we hadn't seen. Um, and so it's it's something my grandfather and my grandmother decided to keep, right, and, and kind of keep put away in a closet. And, um, you know, so those kinds of stories, those are the kinds of letters that really give us insight into um, one individual's experience, but then also the importance of relationships and making those family um, connections while you're serving and keeping that connection to home, I think. Um, that's one example. Yeah, other examples, uh, Sue Grisel? So I'm wearing one. I'm oh, wearing you are. Oh. I'm wearing my grandmother's civil defense volunteer pin oh, from wow. the Second World War, which was found in a box by my father when I was in the middle of a project that was looking at the experience of how civilians encountered air raids uh, during the First and Second World War. And he said, I think I have something. I think my mother was a civil defense volunteer. And so it wasn't the object that prompted the project, but it's an object that I love to wear when I give talks. I love to feel that connection that I am helping others to understand this incredible history of recruiting civilians to volunteer to help keep each other safe in the middle of these threats uh, during the Second World War, even if they're more theoretical than real in the United States, but they're very real in Europe. So I think that there are, this is not the most extraordinary of objects, but it's deeply personal to me. And I hope that there are um, badges like this, that there are medals, that there are good luck charms, that there are hats that were carried back and forth. There are beautiful memorial quilts that were made by communities who lost members uh, during the First World War, for example, that I've seen on display. And I wonder if they're personal quilts or personal items that were crafted to preserve the memory of those who had served and were lost. So I don't want to predict what we'll find. I'm very hopeful that there'll be things that people think, I don't know if anyone's interested in that, and they'll come and start talking about them, and they'll reveal just the power of that individual memory, that individual life, and how that's how we build the story of our communal history. Yeah, that's a real treasure, that, uh, that, that pin you're wearing, yeah. Um, so Molly Cannon, what what kinds of things do you want to know about these objects? We want to know um, really the object's life history, right? How was it? Where was it made? How did you acquire it? Um, why did you keep it? Uh, why has it been passed down? Uh, why did you want to bring it in today? Um, we want to know its connection um, to you. And um, and then we it's our job then to sort of make that publicly available, because I think once we have this public history, this public archive, we'll all see how we connect to each other's objects. I really do. I think we all share these stories in some capacity. So, yeah. Uh, Sue Grisel is a historian. What do you how does that how does this fill in the gaps? How does this help a historian to uh, these objects? And the stories. The, the, yeah. the stories in particular, mm -hmm. because one of the things that's true, and this is something I've learned from anthropologists like Molly and from the years of, of studying war, is that the written record only tells you so much, especially when we think about who has, not just who has the capacity to write, who has the time to write, who's 
written materials get preserved and end up in archives and museums. It's it's a very small sliver of those who actually experience the violence and the and the conflicts. And it really tells us something about whose words are considered valuable. But there are lots of objects that are left over in part because paper is not the most durable of sources. So metal and wood to some extent, fabric to some extent, they can be longer lasting. So we have objects in museums that there are, that are sort of multiple versions of things. That doesn't make them particularly special, it tells us something. But having the story behind that object, understanding the answer to the questions that, that Molly just posed, that helps us bring to life the you know thousands, in the case of the World Wars, millions who participated in these events. I just think there's something very powerful and, and really about democratizing history to go beyond just the written record and especially the official top-down, this is what the general thought of this moment. This is what those who are who are on the ground or under the bombs or on the run thought about this moment. Yeah. Molly Cannon, you're partnering with museums here, right? Um, uh, of course, uh, I think you would say that everybody's attic is a museum, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's, uh, you've, you've got objects, right? That, that in the, These objects that bring in are not going to be placed in museums, but, but the photographs and the stories will be archived. That's right. And museums have a unique role of uh, collecting, curating, and preserving objects. Uh, I think what we're doing here in this project is um, sort of sharing that power with the public to say, here's your opportunity to bring in and curate and preserve your own stories and your own objects and determine what is important for us to, to keep for the future. Yeah. Of course, we hope people come to the road shows you know, and, and do that. But perhaps, uh, you know, in parallel to that, what would you say about, uh, you know, just a family, how best to preserve your your, your objects, your histories? Uh, it's a valuable thing to do. It really is. And that is something that we are working on developing for for these road shows, but also will live on on our on our public spaces like our website and what we're using social media for is to help you document your own stories. Perhaps you don't want them included in a digital archive, and that's perfectly fine. But we want people to know that um, collecting your family history is important, and there are some great resources available to you to do just that work. Yeah. I I was just reading a while back, reading some histories from some ancestors. Um, Surprising, you, you you might think, well, this is going to be musty <laughs> and dull. Uh, some of these stories were hilariously funny, you know, for for one example. They're people, right? Yeah, yeah. They've got frustrations and success and achievements too. Yeah. Uh, so let's just uh, just mention. So April 9th, uh, the USU campus, and then in the afternoon in at the Hiram City Museum. Then April 23rd, that's another a Saturday as well. Hill Hill Aerospace Museum, right? Yes, we're we're excited to work with Aaron Clark and Justin Hall there at Hill. Uh, We will be there from 10 to 2 that day um, to document stories and objects as well. And they have a fabulous space where you will be entertained all day long walking through their galleries. And then May 14th, Fort Douglas Military Museum. Yes, working with um, Bo Bridges, 
um, to host at the Fort Douglas Military Museum located on the University of Utah campus, also from 10 to 2 on that day. Yeah. Uh, so bring your object in. Uh, you'll be asked some questions about it, be photographed. Uh, also, we hope that you'll um, sit down and record about 20 minutes or something uh, with us, um, uh, and that'll be part of the project as well. Uh, you can go to upr.org, upr.org, to sign up to record uh, to one of those places. Or if you can't make those places, uh, we can arrange for you to come to USU UPR studio uh, to, to record. Um before we go to break uh, again, uh, Sue Rizal, I'm interested. I've been thinking mostly about uh, things that soldiers brought home, you know, picked up at war and brought home. There are objects I imagine that uh, soldiers took, you know, took with them, that were meaningful to them. They took into war and then brought back home. Absolutely, and I think those those are often left out of uh, because they're harder to preserve. Just for example. But I keep thinking about the the historical life of the photograph. We all now live with photographs on our phones or somewhere in the cloud. But that moment, which is really a 20th century moment when you could bring the photograph of your loved ones with you uh, to war and, and back with, with inscriptions across armies, there are all kinds of beautiful and poignant stories from the First World War of enemy soldiers encountering each other or encountering a dead body, turning over and finding the preserved photograph of a family and realizing that that moment of human connection. But the photograph as an object really has a, now a very specific life. And so I'm, I'm really fascinated by what that means. Uh, there are lots of examples of uh, women who created whether it's embroidered handkerchiefs in the First World War or some other sort of personal object that were carried to and from the battle zones. And, and, and every stitch, as um, one of the letters I was privileged to read would say, every stitch was made with love. Right? This idea that the object is carrying this, all of the emotions, all of that sort of hope and care and concern um, into these war zones and, and come back and as someone who's very interested in the history of women and the contributions that women have made in the experience they've had during war, I think objects are another way to get at that history that is also often uh, or not written down as much as the history of, of participants. But I think military families are, are just a powerful source of, of the history of war, but also of a way for us to appreciate of what, what war does to individuals and, and to communities. Yeah. By the way, uh, you talk about uh, the, the photograph as an object. Uh, is that, that's changing, of course. You just got them in our phones or in the cloud. What, uh, as a historian, I don't know, is that, is that good or bad, do you think, or what, uh, what do you feel about that? It makes me worried. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, it makes me worried about how much is, is in the sort of ether as someone who studies a war in which people communicated by the written word. And there is really something amazing. I was thinking when Molly was telling that story about finding the family letter, about holding the letter itself in your hands and thinking about the circumstances under which it was created and the process by which it got transported from one part of the world to another, you know, not easily, not instantly. Um, and, and then 
luckily preserved. And I, I wonder about the text messages and the the ways in which our digital photographs you can delete them with a you know with a swipe or a click, and um, and then they're lost. And I do worry about that. I I think that part of the drive behind creating a digital archive and preserving uh, this and making it accessible is is a way. I, so it's personally to counter that fear about losing things. Right. This is a way to preserve them. Yeah. Owner as an anthropologist, what do you you worry as well? Um, I also worry, uh, sure, that is a concern, um, but I think we have these tools now where if we're thinking out of the box and broadly, we want to encourage people to bring those digital representations to us so that we can include them in the archive. We can include texts and we can include digital photographs um, so that it, they are preserved alongside um, the the digital representations of the tangible objects as well. Yeah. I was thinking about those amazing videos, you know, in Ukraine shot by just regular folks, right? Absolutely. That's, I guess that's the upside of of this, right? That that, that's very, very powerful. Just Joe citizen can, can do that. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's take another break. As we head toward this, uh, I I wonder, uh, Molly, do you, do you remember when you first became a member of uh, your public radio station, and what 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 ha- helped you to cross the line? I first became a member when I was a student at the University of Nebraska, and you're probably going to ask me what the, the station <laughs> is, and I can't think of it. I feel terrible, but Nebraska Public Radio. Um, so I would have been, you know, 18 or 19, maybe. Yeah. And what drove me? Well, the same things that I love about radio today. I could hear about what was happening in my community. It was also just this close network. I felt like I'm friends with the people on the radio, right? Yeah, I, they're yeah. in my ear every day. So Yeah. It is an intimate medium, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sue Grizel, I wonder, uh, you know, similar question to, to, to you. Because we're always, because we understand from NPR stats that uh, about 10% of listeners become members, right? And so we're always trying to find the secret sauce. I want to go back to my childhood. I mm. grew up in a NPR family, I want to say, that was on. Where, that's probably why I think the automatic mm. thing you do when you get in a car is you turn on right. your public radio station right. because that's that's my childhood, and I can't even remember the station in New York, but I just remember growing up with the radio as a source of news and a source of knowledge. And so I'm going to say that my parents had me be part of a member family from the time I was five or six. <laughs> well, that's, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful idea, right? Uh, include your kids in, the, in, your, in your membership. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. Well, join your support with uh, Molly's and Sue's here and with uh, all of those who have uh, called so far today. Great day. Let's keep the momentum going. Uh, a couple of ways that you can contact us, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, 800-826-1495, or upr.org, upr.org, that's upr.org. You're supporting Access Utah with your call. Uh, you're supporting um, our involvement with the Bring War Home Project, with the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, with uh, Beehive Archive, which we'll hear uh, later in this hour. Um, with um, Wild About Utah, 
the list goes on and on. Coverage and pair coverage uh, from Ukraine. All of that you support with your contribution in any amount. We hope that you'll take care of that right now. UPR.org or 800-826-1495. We'll take a short break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm joined by uh, Professor of History at USU, Susan Grizel, and by Molly Cannon, Director of the USU Anthropology Museum and USU Mountain West Center. Uh, we are a partner, UPR is, with the Mountain West Center and with uh, the uh, Anthropology Museum and the Department of History in a, an interesting, uh, fascinating project, Bringing War Home. And so what we're looking uh, for you to do is come to one of the road shows. First one is on April 9th, Bring Your Object In. Uh, this could be uh, something that um, your soldier ancestor uh, you know, brought home from war. Um, it's just been... Uh, you know, uh, handed down to your family, uh, could be quite contemporary. We're uh, especially emphasizing World War One and and the Vietnam War, but really any any war, any object brought home by a, a military veteran. You might be a military veteran, so we'd love to have you come in. Or you could be friend of a of a veteran and have an object that uh, that you want to bring in. Bring in your object. We'll ask you a few questions about it. Uh, take a photograph of it. Um, we also would like you to uh, record your story. Uh, in audio. Uh, so we'll be doing that as well. Um, so, uh, Sue Grazel, uh, tell us about this digital archive that'll be happening. I guess that, that'll be one result of the project, right? We're really excited by this aspect of the project because, among other things, we both, or maybe just me, have had the experience of a student in a class in the First World War, the Second World War, or just the 20th century who says, I have this object that my granddad brought back and I want to share it with the class and then that happens and the next class doesn't get to benefit from from seeing that and from hearing that story. So we are working with the USU Digital Initiatives at the library on campus to create a living, publicly accessible digital archive that will make it possible for students and teachers and just interested members of our community to find out more about the objects brought to war that are brought home from war across this span of time. And we are working as soon as these road sh the first roadshows take place to build that archive, to build search engines, to make it publicly available, as I just said, and, ex and so that if you're curious about something that you find in your own attic or basement, that will be one of the places that you can go to to see perhaps objects like it, but also to see the stories that accompany those objects. Oh, that's, yeah, a wonderful opportunity uh, for you. Um, and the fact that y your object is, is archived now. Exactly, so, and shared. And shared, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Molly, can you tell me about the National Endowment for the Humanities uh, grant? This is Dialogues and Experiences from War grant program. That's that's how this got off the ground, right? Yes, this is a program that has um, been in place for about six years now, and their their mission really is to connect veterans with their communities to share experiences during war times um, using important humanities documents and that's the language that they use and you know there's two things that come out for me that stand out for that for me um, and how we've tried to connect our project here is 
um, there's nothing more important than your story. Um, and so we are really interested in your story and how we're going to connect that uh, with the goals and the mission of the of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, and we're doing that through objects. Objects are a source of humanities uh, information. Um, it, they are uh, a media that we as academics use to study human history. Um, and I think it's something, though, that personally we all can connect with an object. Um, we often tell stories through objects and often can tell more difficult stories through an object. Yeah, interesting. Uh, maybe briefly expand on that. You tell more difficult stories through an object. I think um, an, an object embodies those stories. Um, it also gives us kind of a buffer. Instead of me sort of asking you directly about your experience, I can say, well, tell me something about this object. Um, and a lot of times the story will will come out. Um, and I think we, can fe we feel comfortable talking through objects. Yeah. Uh, just uh, maybe 30 seconds a minute, I, I maybe end on this, two results. Um, you're, you're concentrating World War One and Vietnam War, in part on Vietnam War because those veterans are getting older, right? And that there, there's a real sense of poignance that I feel with, with that, which sometimes we feel like we have time, right? Yes. And uh, sometimes, uh, but, but Vietnam War veterans will be, will be dying off, unfortunately, here. It's the the grant itself, and we were so privileged to receive it and to use that as a way to to start this project. Asked you specifically to focus on two wars, and we picked the First World War because that's the war I know uh, know best, and because I think the object from that war are, are fascinating. That's a personal bias, but we also really wanted to pick the Vietnam War precisely for that reason: uh, the desire to capture stories before. They're lost while they're still resonating, um, in part also because sometimes a certain amount of time has to pass by before you're willing to reflect on some experiences. You learn different things in the heat of the moment and different things 10 years after an event and different things 50 years after. More time for reflection, to think about what has been preserved, what, what is valuable enough, meaningful enough to preserve for 50 years will tell us something different than the things 20 years after. I, yeah. I really do believe that. And so I think this is a really pivotal moment uh, to capture those stories from veterans of the Vietnam War, from those who were in their families, those who loved them, those who are descended from them, um, those who've interacted with them. I think there's a, there's a, a complicated and rich history still to uncover. Yeah. So, Mola, can you tell us briefly um, about the road shows? First ones are on April 9th. Yes, you can join us here on the USU campus in Logan at the Eccles Conference Center at 10 a.m. on April 9th and at the Hiram City Museum in the afternoon, uh, beginning kind of an open house from 1 to 3, located there in a Hiram. Very good. And then April 23rd, Hill Aerospace Museum and May 14th, Fort Douglas Military Museum. Uh, go to upr.org to sign up for a time to record your story as well. Uh, thank you for that. So um, before we go to Beehive Archive, Molly, can your final appeal here, in this hour anyway, to, to our listeners? To your, uh, yes, support uh, Utah Public Radio. There's There are many, many stories that they share here with you. Um, they share your story. 
um, they share our stories. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Sue Grazel. Utah Public Radio is just such a valuable part of our community, and we are grateful to be working with them, and we encourage you to help us work with them and to help them continue their incredibly good work. Here's how you uh, do that. Join your support with Susan with Molly's 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can go to upr.org, upr.org. And a big thank you in advance. Uh, we'll go out, as we always do on Wednesdays, with Beehive Archive. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. For almost 100 years, explorers and map makers recorded a river that ran west from Utah out to the Pacific Ocean, despite no such waterway ever even existing. Find out why after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. From the 1770s to the 1840s, A majority of explorers, politicians, and white settlers firmly believed in a great river of the West that ran from Utah all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Despite never laying eyes on this legendary river, mapmakers recorded it this way for nearly 70 years. They were convinced that the land would provide an easy coast-to-coast waterway, making manifest destiny all the more possible. What led to this kind of wishful thinking? A twisted game of telephone began in 1776 when two Franciscan monks tried to find a new route between the Spanish colonies in New Mexico and California. When the Ute people at Utah Lake described to them a nearby river that flowed to a salty body of water, the mapmaker traveling with the monks probably assumed they meant the sea instead of Great Salt Lake. A waterway flowing to the sea would have made Utah an ideal colony for the Spanish Empire. 19th century mapmakers later consulted these Spanish maps to make their own. And suddenly, even the U.S. military, under President Thomas Jefferson, believed in a river connecting Utah Lake to the ocean. This river was recorded with the same name the Spanish had given it, the Rio Buenaventura, meaning River of Good Fortune. It wasn't until American explorer John C. Fremont surveyed Utah's landscape in the 1840s that Americans learned there was no western Mississippi that flowed to the sea. Fremont rightly realized that Utah is part of a great basin, where water collects in pools and terminal lakes. Even then, when Fremont explained his discovery to U.S. President James Polk in 1845, Polk didn't believe him. He told Fremont he was an impulsive young man and remained certain that the outlets flowed from the Rockies to California. After all, it was on the map. How could the president persist in his belief, despite evidence confirming a waterway could never be possible? Put simply, manifest destiny and westward expansion required a lot of money. For policymakers and the public, imagining Utah as a bountiful paradise and not an arid, isolated desert made colonizing America a lot less daunting. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.